Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is The Guardian. This is not really an issues election at the moment, and I think if Labor allows it not to be an issues election, they may end up regretting it. At the moment, it's a personality contest between a guy that people don't really like and a guy that people don't really know. Hello, lovely people of podcasts. I think most people know we're right in the middle of the election season. And this week we had the first Guardian Essential poll since uh, Scott Morrison visited the Governor-General, dissolved the parliament and uh, pushed the country into an election. Today, Peter Lewis, the Executive Director of Essential and myself, break down uh, the ins and outs of the latest poll and uh, we do this on a fortnightly basis on a webinar uh, that's organised by the progressive think tank, the Australia Institute. This particular conversation was recorded on Wednesday this week and we covered, uh, well, a range of things really. Uh, we looked at, at the gender split, male and female voters having different levels of approval and disapproval of the Prime Minister. Uh, we pondered whether or not women may in fact decide the outcome of the looming election, which is a pretty interesting thought. Uh, we we discussed uh, the phenomenon of the Prime Minister being shadowed on the campaign trail by his own record, which is a different set of circumstances to 2019 when he was last on the hustings. And uh, we obviously spoke about Anthony Albanese's rough first week to the campaign and uh, how he might begin to pivot out of that and consolidate and recover. Now, this conversation today is moderated by Ebony Bennett, who is the Deputy Director of the Australia Institute, and Eb's about to ask me the first question. Catherine, I'll come to you firstly. Um, we are going to deep dive into the latest poll results very shortly because we're all interested in the campaign, but I did just want to come to that Solomon Islands security deal with China. It is the big news from the last 24 hours. What's happened and, and what should people know? Basically, this deal, this this mooted deal between China and the Solomon Islands uh, has been signed, which is uh, which has sort of sent. Uh, well, I mean, shockwaves is ridiculously overstated, but it, it certainly it's it's a very significant development, and uh, and it's been observed not only within the region but around the world. Uh, the Americans are clearly very worried about it, and have engaged in a full court press over recent days uh, to try and uh, forestall this eventuality. Uh, also, uh, the the uh, Morrison government uh, was uh, deployed during the election campaign again to try and forestall the official signing of this agreement. So pretty uh, amazing circumstances, elections or not. Um, but, yeah, that has been the big news over the last 24 hours. Ebb, uh, Labor's gone on the offensive this morning, really hit the airwaves uh, hard this morning to accuse the government of presiding over a, you know, a, a substantial regional security failure by allowing, uh, you know, this set of circumstances to proceed, you know, on, on their watch. That issue basically dominated uh, Scott Morrison's press conference on the hustings this morning. Uh, Morrison said, you know, oh, well, look, we take sovereignty in the Pacific very seriously and we've done we've done everything we can and uh, yada, yada, yada. But I guess the danger for the government is here's this development in the middle of the campaign at a time when the government wants to present 
itself as being, you know, very manly men on national security issues and car key issues in general. And this development getting away from Australia um, cuts across that message. It goes to competency and it goes to competency in matters of national security. The other sort of barrage of questions the Prime Minister faced uh, on the hustings this morning, Ebb um, and, and folks today, was about nuclear-powered submarines because uh, the Prime Minister was on the hustings in Adelaide today where building defence um, material is a very, very big political issue. He faced loads of questions about whether or not, uh, you know, the, the, the promised build of these new submarines agreed under the AUKUS deal will ever occur in Australia. And again, you know, the Prime Minister had to hedge his answers because <laughs> it's not clear, you know, to what extent uh, there will be an Australian build associated with these subs. So, Look, the sort of summary uh, is, um, you know, national security defence, their frames the coalition likes, their frames that the message frames, I mean, that the coalition has sought to impose in this contest, particularly in the in the prelude to the contest. Uh, you know, we've, we've been more in on the economy, I think, since we've been in the campaign proper, but still they like security as a backdrop. They like security as it's like a big, you know, one of those sort of um, you know, on the Coles ads with the, you know, with the hands that sort of point <laughs> yeah. down, you know, we're, we're, the, we're the guys on national security. Well, <laughs> not so much, it would seem. So um, anyway, so that's been the, the sort of key development, I think, substantively and politically over the last 24 hours. And did I hear Andrew Clennell, I thought it was, ask a question about where the foreign minister was and was she at a fundraiser instead of being in the Pacific? Did he answer that one? I had to step away. Yeah, I, yes, I, I can't remember actually whether we got a direct answer to that question, Ed, yes. but no, but this was one of the points raised, I suppose, attack lines raised by Labor this morning that... Uh, as uh, you know, as things were escalating in the Solomons towards this conclusion, Australia deployed the, the junior Pacific spokesperson rather than sending Maurice Payne off in, into the region to sort of, you know, I guess show as well as well as tell, if that makes sense. You know, you send someone senior, it shows that you you're serious, you're taking this seriously. Um, so you know, yeah, that certainly has been one of the one of the lines deployed against Morrison over the last 24 hours. Whether or not we've done enough, whether or not we were, you know, we were onto it early enough, forceful enough in trying to persuade the Solomons this was not a good idea. And of course, then that plays back more generally into Morrison's relationship with the Pacific, which is the family, as the Prime Minister likes to to refer to our Pacific neighbours, you know, it's all peace, love and harmony, uh, except <laughs> except when it's not. Um, and there's been significant disagreements, obviously, between Australia and the Pacific on climate change. And now we've got this extremely serious development in the Solomons. Pete, um, we're going to go now to the slides and uh, the horse race, <laughs> so to speak. Oh, um, let's, let's not, let's not. Yeah, let's do it. Um, <laughs> just before we go in, I just I I'm, I wonder if, in our own little way, we've helped the gut save the government from itself with um, our polling because it was only a couple of months ago we were putting out data that clearly showed the government wasn't the preferred party managing the complex relationship with China. I'm not saying there was a causal connection, but they kind <laughs> of stopped running it after um our poll position, Catherine. So maybe they'd be a little bit more exposed today if, if we hadn't been sharing our wisdom. Anyway, here's the scoreboard after the first week of the political contest 2022. The most interesting number here is the one in the middle is actually the undecideds. Um, so as you guys know, we changed our formulation to keep an eye on people who hadn't made up their minds yet. Um, the top line there, and for those playing at home on the Guardian podcast, if you want to go to essentialreport.com.au, you can play with all these numbers. Um, but we've basically got a primary vote of 35 Labor, 37 Coalition, nine to the Greens on the left, 11 other independents. I won't say the right anymore because I don't know quite how you describe teal independence, um, but 7% undecided, which washes out. I'm not even going to say using the old figures because we are really conscious of not pretending that one side is above 50 and therefore winning. 
It's pretty tight. Um, the big shift, if you go to the next one, Eb, over the first week of the campaign was a bit of a drop in Labor primary and only a point margin of error. But the interesting bit there was the undecideds back up. And this is all statistical noise, but it went from what I thought was a very low five back up to seven. Um, so, again, there was a lot of colour and movement last week. There has been a couple of movements in Albo's approvers, as we see in a sec. Um, I don't think anyone can sugarcoat that it wasn't a less than perfect start to the campaign and people go, oh, it's just MSM or mainstream media beating things up, but misstepping on a key economic figure on day one isn't great and it did have an impact on people that are watching politics out of the corner of their eye, but it's the first week of a six-week campaign and it ain't over. What you'll see here is that for all that, and for all the boosterism that's going on around Morrison in sections of the media as well, his disapprovals are still 48, which is really high, um, 44 undecideds. The other bit, if you go to the next slide, Ebony, which I've done my column in today's Guardian about, is the big, big gender divide still. Have a look at this. 51% male approval. They like, you know, the bellicose high-biz dude, 38% female, likewise 51% female disapproval. That's a pretty substantial gender split. But also look down the bottom there, twice as many women are still to make up their mind um, as men. So I think an election that does see a change of government, I think, is one where women have a decisive say in the final result. I'm not predicting what's happening down the track. I know that a lot of people are feeling really disconsolent after the first week of the campaign. But those numbers there tell me there's an election to be won here um, and there's a whole bunch of issues that I also talk about in terms of my Guardian where piece where um, I don't think this government has much to say and for all their... Um, for all the minimalism of the Labor policy offering, there are some significant um, economic propositions that we'll talk about a bit later that potentially talk to this cohort, recognising, of course, that you can't reduce women down to a single demographic any more than any other demographic group. Um, I might just stick here with approvals and go to the Anthony mm, Albanese yeah. approval, disapproval. Yeah, 5% increase in disapproval over the month. So that isn't just on the week, but we're in the field last week. Approval down. So he's at net neutral now. And again, if you do have a look at the next slide um, at the gender split there, again, big numbers of female voters who have yet to form a view. So unlike Morrison, it's not like the gender profile of approval, disapproval are inverse. It's pretty consistent. It's pretty line ball for both. But look at that large number of undecided female voters when it comes to Albo again, which again says to me there is an election to be won here. And again, just to go back to what we started doing after 2019, keeping our eye on the undecideds and the people that say they don't know and trying to understand what's going on for them is probably the most important piece of analysis we can do. Um, Catherine, did you have any observations there about that gender split in particular that's playing out? Well, I think it is really interesting and it does indicate, as Pete says, there is a significant cohort there that are on the fence and are yet to decide, but uh, the Prime Minister is less approved of by female voters than by male voters, which I don't think would surprise anybody given um, events of the last <laughs> 18 months. But again, it's sort of, it lines up, I suppose, with these field trips that we did uh, in marginal seats just before the election was called properly, uh, there is this sort of broad dissatisfaction with Morrison and there's interest in Labor. There's certainly interest in Labor, but it's soft. It hasn't solidified yet. People haven't really locked in, yes, uh, yes, I'm, I'm cranky enough with Morrison now to vote for a change as represented by the other major party, right? That's there. It's all around the country. And also, I suppose, overlaid on the top of that is uh, the interest in this election cycle in independence and micro parties. I mean, our those slides don't speak to that exactly, except in the broad metrics, obviously. I suppose our poll is very much um, sort of uh, tracking alongside our improvised 
focus groups in marginal seats that we've been doing. You know, the, it, the, the sort of, the, the, you know, the, the main poll metrics line up with what voters are saying at this point in time. Mm-hmm. So it is, it is interesting. Um, and obviously, um, yes, look, it wasn't a great start for Anthony Albanese. It, it wasn't. Uh, people, as Pete says, can criticise media coverage and, I completely understand why, I really do, but that was, as Albanese himself knows, a very bad stumble out of the gate Uh, and then, of course, was picked up by the media cycle and amplified for the best part of 72 hours, which is why we see a corresponding impact in disapproval of Albanese after the first week on the campaign trail. But all of those other metrics indicate, one, it's close, Two, there are a number of voters still undecided. And uh, as Pete says, uh, watch watch the women. I think, you know, that data suggests that, that they are going to play a significant role in determining the next government of Australia. So I just want to dive back in here because I know we do have a few questions at the end of the slides, Pete, that mm. go towards some of those um, cost of living issues and whatnot. But here... Um, You've got a question, which is closer to your own view about the federal government? Does it have to be elected? Time to give someone else a go and unsure. Yeah, these are. this is one of those stock. There are a couple of stock standard polling questions that are used in the lead up to election that isn't who you're going to vote for, but is allegedly indicative. And I've put two of them side to side to sort of almost illustrate the two campaigns. So 48-34, for close viewers, that 48 is exactly the same number as the Prime Minister's disapproval rating, I might add. <laughs> um, so 48% time to give someone else a go, 34% deserve to be re-elected, which is pretty close to the coalition primary vote. And then 18% um unsure. So if you were just looking at that, you go, hey, we're on for a change here, people. A couple more points and, you know, that's it. Um, But if you go to the next slide, which is where I take a bit of caution, this is another one that we traditionally ask, which is, do you think the country's heading in the right direction or the wrong direction? And it's a pretty similar break, isn't it? 46 right direction, 37 wrong direction. It was reminding me of the final week of 2019 when all the polls, including mine, were saying Labor would win narrowly. But we asked the question, how happy are you? And we got this really high level of happiness and it made me wonder whether people were so happy they weren't going to change things too much. And again, this is really the coalition's election campaign. If you think we're heading in the right direction, why would you change it? Labor's is it's time to give someone else a go. And the way those two intersect will ultimately be the, you know, in, in, in communications, we call it a battle box. They're the two messages that are being put out by either side. One of them wins and one of them loses. And I think the election determines on which of those frames ends up holding together for the longest. It's, it's also, um, you know, it, it, they are they are sort of questions testing the salience, in essence, mm-hmm. um, of, of the two major campaign messages. It's time for a change versus better the devil you know, right? Like that's been the opening sort of sorties of the election campaign and, and we see <laughs> we see this phenomenon, right? So that uh, because it's sort of stuck, uh, because it hasn't really shifted decisively in one direction or the other yet, and it's and that's because it's early days, that in part explains the resort to negatives um, by uh, by both sides, because generally what we get a barrage of negative sort of after the midpoint of an election campaign broadly. I mean, that's a that's sort of a bit of a truism, but that's what experience would tell me, that in the opening couple of weeks of an election campaign, both sides try to, you know, put their nice, smiley, positive face forward. Um, and then as the campaign accelerates to decision day, that's when the negatives tend to weigh in. You know, the the sort of it's like an offensive, a ground offensive where, you know, the the air force general offensive, yeah. You know, the the, the air support comes in, which is the advertising usually negative. That cycle uh, come a bit quicker in this campaign, I think, because of because of that. That's my theory anyway, Pete. Sorry. Well the the other thing is I think those two slides also explain the extent to which a lot of people would see Labor with a bit of a policy straitjacket on in there trying to say 
we're going to have a change, but accepting that the majority of people don't think the country's heading in the wrong direction now. The other thing is, look back to February, it was much more, we're much more positive. It's it's a shift of what, you know, 9 10% since where it was line ball, right, wrong direction back in Feb. So it, it is actually also explaining why Labor would be making the safe change argument rather than a radical change argument. Yeah. If we all thought we were heading in the wrong direction, it might be a very different campaign. Um, next slide here. Uh, would each of the following be higher under a Labor or coalition government? So Labor and coalition kind of head-to-head on a range of economic impacts. Yeah. Look, I, w- I was interested here in taking it one step from better economic manager or who, or who do you trust to handle these issues to actually look at specifically do people think different economic inputs would be higher under Labor or a coalition. And what's really interesting to me is, A, on areas like debt, interest rates and unemployment, the coalition are seen as being lower, Labor higher, but not by a lot. But then on wages, 37.23 and cost of living, 31.33. That's really line ball, isn't it? Um, And then a high level of saying it makes no difference. So, again, it makes you wonder um, whether there is that salience in terms of um, the coalition totally owning the economy the way that um, I think they would like to and the, you know, most political textbooks would say they do. Um, party most trusted to manage the care economy. Why did you put this one in, Pete? Well, if you look at what Labor's policy prescription is um, around health, aged care, early learning slash childcare and also the disability policy released yesterday, where Labor is putting different policies forward, it tends to be in this area, which going back to my earlier statement um, or observation around where women are, and I don't want to characterise these as a pink economy because I think it diminishes them, but these are sectors of the economy that often just get brushed aside as being service lines, which are actually really hefty parts of the economy. The health is a large part of the economy. Aged care is a failed sector of the economy where old people are not getting the care they deserve because of a failed business model. Early learning childcare is... um, a potential engine room of building the next generation of kids being more ready for school, delivering more um, productivity for for Australia's future. And the NDIS, the work we've done with per capita and, you know, um, disclosure, I'm running the campaign in that field, so I've got a bit of skin in the game there. Um, For every dollar spent on the NDIS, a $2.25 dividends. So, I think looking at those elements as part of the economy is actually a bit of a political statement in itself. I notice um, the great Peter Hartcher wrote a very compelling article um, in the Fairfax last weekend looking at the mummy versus the daddy models of government. I, I challenge that. I think part of Labor's challenge is to say this is an economic reform agenda. We are looking at areas of care that will deliver long-term economic benefit. You can say a lot of things about us, but don't say we don't have an economic agenda because it's there. And if they roll that out properly and you look at those undecided female voters, that seems to me to be, you know, political gold. But, Catherine, coming back to you, that's really the the challenge, isn't it? Like Labor's trying to set out that on these issues that, you know, they're hoping people care about and where the wages are low, that they are much more trusted by the community to deliver in those aspects, whereas the coalition's kind of much more macro macro level will keep interest rates lower and harking back to those kinds of campaigns. Do you have a sense of which has got more traction at the moment? I think both are a bit nascent, but before I drill into that point, I've suddenly thought for people listening to the show, as opposed to watching it, my very helpful crossed arm gesture with <laughs> fingers pointing in opposite directions will be completely <laughs> be completely lost on the audio <laughs> audience. So a minute ago where we were talking about those two points of cam uh, two points of messaging going in opposite directions, 
I made a gesture, a crossed arm gesture with my arms, with fingers pointing in opposite directions just to translate my own stupidity for the audio <laughs> audience. Now, listen. Well, it's more tasteful than that, Catherine. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, guys. Sorry, guys. Seriously. Anyway, in terms of which is which has taken off, Ed, which is your question, you know, I care and your government cares versus versus we'll keep your home interest rates low. And, I mean, and don't forget voters at the moment are being bombarded by Clive Palmer ads saying that he'll fix interest rates at 3% or something absolutely absurd. So that's sort of being bombarded through uh, Palmer's television advertising messaging at the moment. So, anyway, that's that's just an mm. interesting point to run that in the back of your mind because uh, all of... Palmer's ad spend is, is still massive and uh, even if the issues that he's highlighting aren't really sort of at the centre of the of the major party campaign, they are still in the background. Mm. Yeah, I think it's been an interesting shift in the last couple of weeks, Palmer shifting to those interest rates and those yeah. messages because it starts feeling like he's leaning behind the Liberal narrative. And just, just to round out, and I'm sorry to do this, on. I don't think Labor runs We Care. Like, I think We Care is an invitation to say we're going to spend more money. I think it's more that it we are going to take responsibility for sections of the economy the government has let fall apart or just drift, like aged care and disability. And, yeah, I think Labor's line that Morrison doesn't take responsibility fits into that yeah, really yeah, nicely. Yeah. No, 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 you're true. It's, it's, it's entirely true, Pete, and, and good to draw out that distinction that it is a responsibility point. But I also do think that, that it is an empathy point. And I think if anybody watched Anthony Albanese's press conference this morning and the way he constructed arguments around failures in aged care, it was certainly a responsibility point you know, that the Prime Minister doesn't take responsibility for anything other than the photo ops, but it was also an empathy point. It's like the contrast he was trying to draw is I'm real, I care, and that bloke, he's not real and he doesn't care. So it's both, mm. in my mm. view. I don't think it's all responsibility. I think empathy is there too. And then that plays in some sort of, you know, the broader point, which is Ebb's point, like which economy are we debating, right, in this election campaign? Well, the reality is both, but I don't think that any any particular message, be it responsibility, stroke empathy or interest rates, has really accelerated yet in terms of the main campaign message, message largely because, <laughs> because there is, a, on, on certainly on the government side, you know, the, the principal difference be, between 2019 and now with, with Morrison as a campaigner is not that Morrison is, has become less able at campaigning. Morrison is extremely able in, in the campaign space. That's his strength. What's happening in this campaign that did not happen in 2019 is that he is being shadowed by his own record everywhere he goes. He wants to just get back into his preferred message machine mode where he's like a combine harvester rolling around the country spouting <laughs> out messages, right? <laughs> and he'll roll over anybody who's not, you know, like it's it's basically like one of those, you know, public affairs systems that, you know, is rolling down the road attached to a heavy vehicle. That's what, that's what he wants to do. That's his strength. But he is being shadowed constantly either by internal disunity and, and roving street battles in different sort of areas of his own political party or by his record in government, which leads us back to the Solomons, which is where we started the conversation today. Catherine, right? do you get the sense that the, um, do you get any sense the magician's given up his tricks though? Like uh, is the gallery just accepting his messages the way they were three years ago or are they starting to go, hey, this is just an announcement, what's the fun, what's the basis for the announcement or are they just taking it all in still? It's like you asked me the gallery as if there's a hive mind, yeah. as if there's a daily meeting out there in the corridor that we all attend and take notes. That doesn't happen. Contrary to popular myth, that doesn't happen. In terms of, you know, what a reporter's doing on the campaign trail, well, I think week one, if I'm being honest, was predominantly amplification of the key messages of the coalition campaign. I think week two, towards the end of week one and week two, we started to settle into 
um, uh, that that dynamic that I flagged a minute ago that 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 he can't outrun the record. That's the point. It's sort of like Morrison, I think, got seventy two hours of clear air to establish the terms of the election, uh, and then and since then there's been this crowding in of of his record or or culture fights or institutional fights within the Liberal Party. And, and so he's now getting, basically he's getting that uh, quite aggressively, I think, each day through the travelling media pack. So anyway, there's a long way to go. I, I do think, you know, these, these two issues substantively, um, you know, sort of, you know, call it the consumer economy with interest rates and wages and other things but, and caring economy, the two aren't, you know, the two aren't contending with one another. They're all part of the same bloody economy. It's all the same thing. I think broadly that's, you know, where the campaign will kind of orbit around, but it's just, but it's been very messy because there's constant sort of disruptions in the first week of his Albanese and the gaff cycle and in, and now it's Morrison and the record. I'm going to go to the first question from Robert Delves, who says, given that minor parties are polling nearly 30%, is it fair that nearly all media is Albo and ScoMo? Although I note a lot of media is trying to avoid those nicknames, Albanese and Scott Morrison, shouldn't they be getting one third each with minor parties getting a third of overall media coverage? Catherine, I'll come to you uh, on this one. Well, look, I think uh, it's it's a balance, and I actually think there's been quite a lot of coverage for uh, uh, independents and micro parties in this election cycle. Uh, because if you do any work at the moment out in in marginal seats, what you'll detect is that there is a there is a pervasive pox on both your houses environment out there at the present time, and there is an appetite. Uh, for uh, alternatives for uh, independents and micros. So um, I think actually there's probably been, truthfully, I think there's probably been more reporting um, about some uh, of these other sort of contenders, I guess, uh, than, there, than there usually is. With that said, though, um, we, we basically maintain close watch on the major party campaigns for the very simple and blindingly obvious reason that it is the major parties in Australia that form governments. Now, at the end of this election campaign, it may be close enough that, that this is a minority government of one stripe or another. That is absolutely certainly possible, in which case uh, we know, I know from experience, having obviously covered the 43rd Parliament, then your reporting sort of telescope is like, you know, has to has to pan out much more widely to basically make sure that you're across all of the relevant political actors because that's the way you follow deliberations and decisions, right? That's in terms of how the parliament actually works. So while, you know, I, I get uh, that there's all kinds of legit reasonable criticism about media coverage and, you know, I'm also a media consumer as well as a practitioner and I sit there kind of whacking my head on the desk as much as anybody else. Uh, but I actually think the coverage this time is probably proportionate based on where uh, opinion polls tell us the contest is tracking. And we do need to maintain the most focus on the major parties for that simple reason. They are, at, at, the, at this point in Australian political history. I mean, I don't know what will happen in five years or 10 years or 20 years, but right now uh, governments are formed either by the Labor Party or by the Liberal and National Parties, and that is why there is uh, the lion's share of focuses on the major party campaigns. But, yeah, I guess, Catherine, too, with so many independents, and it's not just teal independents mm. in safe liberal seats, there's a whole range of micro parties and independents running against the nationals in regional seats yeah. as well. Yeah. So it's kind of a very big phenomena, but hard to pick which one is going to get across well, the line. Well, that's the thing, and it'll be interesting because, you know, where, where we wash up at the end of this campaign in terms of when, when we look back, 
professionally and think, okay, was our focus in broadly the right place, right? Were we looking at the right seats? Were we looking at the right campaigns and candidates and actors? Um, You know, it's very hard to do these things perfectly in real time. It is incredibly hard to do it perfectly. And as Ib says, it's not only the teals, which are obviously getting a lot of um, uh, focus, um, it's there are independents in seats all around the country uh, that will make the sort of end result in some of these seats very interesting, and there is the phenomenon obviously of uh, of Palmer and and One Nation and the residual anti mandate anti vax sentiment that is still in in minority in this country but around right in in places all around the country, so. Look, I think to the extent that we are able to, media-wise, with the with the resources that we have, I think we have actually attempted to have our eyes in as many places as possible. But, you know, will we make the right calls about who, you know, which was the right independent to watch? I mean, look, it's it's not a science. It's an art, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, we could, we could do it perfectly in hindsight. We, we absolutely could. But when you're doing it in real time, you know, your eyes are not necessarily exactly in the right place. But anyway, we'll find out. It's pretty interesting, this this uh, this campaign and, and how that resolves in terms of, you know, how the kind of independent miners micro party uh, vote resolves as a thing in itself and how the preferences from that disaffection are distributed, uh, you know, a bit like the women, how we were saying earlier, a bit like women will decide the outcome of the election. I think, uh, you know, preference distributions from a lot of these non-major party actors will also determine, you know, who the next government is. Yeah, just sticking with that, I've got a couple of people in here asking about Adam Bant's performance at the National Press Club last week um, and kind of what the panel thought of that. Um, For those who didn't watch it, uh, I was actually there and uh, he covered obviously some of the Greens' key concerns and tried to set out kind of how they would negotiate if they end up um, in a position of balance of power and helping to, I guess, pick who uh, gets into government at the next election. So some of the key asks were um, to put dental and medical care, uh, mental health care into Medicare was one of the key things. Uh, another one was a moratorium on kind of new gas and coal um, projects, as well as really highlighting, I guess, all the subsidies that are going into that as part of their you know, focus on on climate change, obviously, as the Greens Party. Um, Catherine, did you have any other reflections on on their contribution, particularly given that they, you know, they're they're likely going to be in balance of power at least in the Senate, if not in the lower house as well? Well, the Greens remain a really important political force in Australia. Um, you know, it'll be really interesting to see. That I know the Greens are doing some a slightly different style of campaigning in some of the uh, lower house seats that they're contesting, like in Brisbane and in other places. It's, there's just some interesting tweaks to their campaigning style on the ground in some of those progressive seat tussles. Then in terms of where the Greens end up in the Senate is pretty important to, uh, you know, the, the complexion of the next Senate of Australia. And one of the uh, you know, I've, I've certainly touched on this point, but, you know, we'll probably do more on it as, as we get closer. There has been this really interesting, I don't know how I'd describe it exactly, but sort of like risk planning. I'd describe it as that in terms of Senate actors. There's the Greens, obviously, that have a, have a large block in the Senate. There's also been concern um, uh, you know, we've seen Nick Xenophon return to the Senate race, for example. Uh, you know, I, I think I've said on the show before in Northwest Tasmania, my God, Jackie Lambie is a phenomenon. It's very hard to describe how big she is uh, to a national audience unless you've been down there and had a look. I think there is this interesting kind of uh, risk management planning going on uh, between, um, call it the non one nation. Senate forces, right? There is a, there is certainly a desire on the part of the Greens and others that one nation don't end up with with the balance of power, if at all possible, uh, at the end of this election result. I think that that in large part explains the return of Nick Xenophon to attempt to get himself a Senate spot. That you know, I think in Jackie Lambie's mind, 
she thinks if I can if I can get back, if my candidate, preferred candidate can get back, Tammy Tyrrell in in Tasmania, if if Xenophon's back, then there's a block of votes that are not necessarily sort of uh, populist right-wing votes in the centre or a block of representation, I should say. So anyway, that's a bit of a, a stroll away from the Greens, but the point being the Greens remain an important force in Australian uh, elections. They will be after the election. As Eb says, they'll certainly be in a in a you know in a position of significant influence in the Senate. It depends slightly on who the other actors are in the Senate and, and, and the final numbers. But they, you know, they are very important. And also we could be dealing with a minority government situation in the House of Representatives. And you know, I can't see Adam Bant losing his seat. So I imagine, you know, we're in for a pretty interesting time on the other side. Um, sticking with climate change for a bit, the next question is from Ronald Smith. He talks about Angus Taylor using undisclosed data sources to claim the cost of energy will increase under Labor um, and pointing out that we still don't know where he got the documents that turned out to be fake about Clover Moore. Um, Catherine, do you know how The Guardian is reporting this at the very least? Yes, uh, look, there was there was a uh, what we call in our line of work, there was a drop, uh, meaning, you know, figures are supplied to um, the News Corp tablo- tabloids earlier in the week, uh, basically uh, putting question marks over Labor's um, uh, climate change policy and the impact on power prices and other things. Um, look, obviously, every everybody's policy is open to scrutiny. There have been some minor criticisms that I'm aware of or questions raised around the Reputex modelling that sits behind the Labor policy at this point in time. I mean, they're, they're, you know, some entirely credible experts have said, oh, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure that's right, exactly right, but it's kind of ballpark, but what, anyway. So there has been a, a debate. Then all of a sudden, uh, you know, sort of work that was construed as modelling, um, you know, entirely unclear by whom, highly unlikely to be actual modelling, Turned up in uh, the news limit, the News Corp tabloids at the start of the week, which was you know shock horror. Labor will do terrible things to your power prices and and you know uh, kidnap all your unicorns or you know whatever the the, the, <laughs> the, the line was. Anyway, it's sort of um, yeah. Look, my wonderful colleague Adam Morton, who's our climate and environment editor, wrote a very good piece in the Guardian today. If you've not seen it basically, you know, pointing out that this is how lies get seeded during election campaigns. Look, I, uh, compared to 2019, I'm not sure yet whether or not the seeding of that particular lie will be as problematic as, uh, you know, the lie of the last campaign, the principal lie, which was the war on the weekend, which was the campaign launched against Labor's entirely sensible vehicle emissions standard policy. Look, I don't know whether it'll have the same salience as it did in 2019, but for those of us who've been around this rodeo too bloody long, um, you know, you see these things. You see this. This is this is the beginning of a misinformation campaign. It needs to be called out early and often. And if you want to read something erudite and to the point on the subject, have a look at what Adams uh, published today. It's very much worth your time. Um, Pete, the next one might be for you. Alan Colligado has asked, "What's the important issue that will make the undecided cohort get off the fence?" Do we have any sense of what those undecided voters care about? Oh, look, I think that for Labor, health is still the, the opportunity. Um, they have not really announced a lot at the moment. And health is something that can be as broad or narrow as you want to make it. But that's obviously a sweet spot for, for Labor in most elections. I think it's got to be more than just they're going to rip apart Medicare. Um, so we've got to see what rolls out and whether you can build momentum around that. But I'd go back to the, this is not really an issues election at the moment. And I think if Labor allows it not to be an issues election, they may end up regretting it. Um, at the moment, it's a personality contest between a guy that people don't really like and a guy that people don't really know. Now, if Albo can fill himself in in a way that is makes him appear a safe pair of hands and that's the whole election, then you'll say amazing three-year strategy well executed. 
But there is also a world that says there is a world that says this is an overcorrection from 2019 when Labor threw everything at it, and this time they're kind of not putting anything out there. So I don't think the cupboard's totally been emptied out on what they're going to roll out. I don't know, but I think that the onus is really on them to not just be enough to say we're not the other guy, but here are some things that we are going to be doing that will make your life better. And again, back to the earlier um, stats, it's not like the Libs have a mortgage on better wages, cost of living, or the other economic indicators for that matter. Labor's well ahead when you start talking about the caring economy. There are rich veins to be tapped. It's there to be won. And I feel there's a lot of people probably on this call, a lot of people on our side of politics that feel, oh, my God, here we go again. The polls are wrong and, you know, Morrison's going to pull off another miracle. Now, maybe he will, but nothing is preordained. What happens over the next five, four or five weeks as those disengaged voters who look at politics out of the corner of their eye know they've got to turn up to vote. And some of them won't be making their call until they're stepping in that booth. How you create that wave of change is still the real challenge to change government and it is still there to be won. Pete, this one might also be for you. Have you looked at the Senate race in the ACT and is Zed Soldier in danger against um, the two strong independents, that being, I think, David Pocock and Kim Rubenstein? Green's also in that mix as well. Have you looked at the ACT recently, Pete? Look, we do a poll of a 1,000. The ACT, for all its dynamism as a place, doesn't rate a statistically valid mention in our poll. So I can't pretend <laughs> we do. But I do know that particularly David Pocock as one of the teal independents is being seen as a real threat to, um, what did um, Penny Wong call it, uh, Chief Woodchucker? Um, <laughs> Zed, Zelja. Um, so there is, a real, there is a real battle going on. Um, in the ACT Senate. I just don't pretend to have any polling numbers on it. I've got one question here I did want to touch on from Mel Smith and Catherine. I'll send this one to you. Um, what impact does the, the issue of um, trans women have on out-of-suburban voters and why is Scott Morrison jumping on this and, and using this as a strategy? So for people who aren't following that, come up um, both in Tasmania with a Liberal candidate in Tasmania and for their current candidate in Warringah as well, highlighting the issue of trans women in women's sports and trying to make that into a big issue. Catherine, I can't really see that that's the hugest issue facing women's sports. But, yeah, yeah why is the, the the Prime Minister picking up on this? Who's he targeting? Yeah, it's a very interesting question. And I think that if we sort of work through this sequentially, the whole sort of cultural war around trans is huge in uh, in the United Kingdom and, and in America. Uh, it hasn't really hit Australian shores yet. We're sort of, as usual, a lagging indicator in the culture wars. Um, so, uh, so I just want to say that as a bit of backdrop. It's it's a very it's the new culture war in democracies not unlike Australia. Uh, in terms of how it's being inserted in this contest, well, look, I see there is some commentary around about whether or not the Prime Minister has just already written off the teal seats, whether he's just assuming losses in all of those seats and is using weaponising trans as an effort to try and appeal to outer suburban voters or voters in latent red seats and by that, uh, or blue, latent blue seats, like seats that are currently Labor that might switch to the coalition column. Um, you know, I see this sort of, you know, being uh, speculated around the place as if this is some, you know, grand strategy or master narrative. Um, I'm not really sure that's right. I think obviously uh, the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, like John Howard before him, has a long-term political project to try and convert as many traditional blue-collar Labor voters to the coalition's cause as he as he possibly can. I think that's quite important to this Prime Minister as it was to John Howard. So I think, you know, any anything that he can weaponise that speaks to that demographic, he will. That is his past form. Although, interestingly, in government, he tends to back off the culture wars. It's quite interesting, actually. But anyway, putting that to one side, I think this is a long-term project for the Prime Minister in broad terms. 
But, look, I don't think that this is some sort of master strategy that they've cooked up, that they're just willy-nilly shrugging their shoulders and saying, oh, yes, actually, we can afford to drop five seats in this election campaign. Including your treasurer. Exactly, which and because we're going to pick up, you know, these kind of uh, blue-leaning red seats. Look, I mean, maybe that's a dynamic that happens. Possibly it happens. But I think it's it's probably more accurate to describe this or, or characterise this as a found strategy, right? And by that I mean something that you you develop along the way. You discover, oh, God, we've got a problem here. Um, I'm not sure we can reverse the problem. And, and by a problem here I mean a problem that the Liberal Party has amongst centre-right progressive voters in metropolitan Australia, which is basically the dynamic sitting underneath these teal contests. The government obviously has that problem. It hasn't, despite, you know, Morrison, you know, dragging the Nats across the line on net zero and other things, hasn't been able to defuse that bomb that the Liberal Party has in the cities. Um, These teal independents, I don't know if any of them will win, but they're certainly um, they're running very professional campaigns and the government is certainly very worried about those seats. So it is possible that Morrison, you know, who's, who will have excellent polling, the Libs, the Libs always have very good polling and very good data, it's possible he's looking at the, the sort of map of the country at the moment and thinking, oh, God, maybe, maybe we can't get those seats back. We have to we have to lean in. We have to look for gains elsewhere, and we have to do that by whatever means necessary. I think it's that is possibly happening, but sort of uh, you know, and and some days demonstrably happening. I shouldn't say possibly because it is demonstrably happening. But again, if we sort of uh, realise we're kind of coming up against time, and this is such yeah. a good question, um, but anyway, and I'm trying to do it justice in my answer. It's sort of. Um, there's there's a little tiny test of that whether or not Morrison's completely written off his teal seats or not, and that's this private members bill by the Liberal Senator Claire Chandler. Now Morrison dangled that out in the first week of the campaign as being something that he might have something to say about during the election campaign. All of his moderates went uh, to put it politely apeshit, and the Prime Minister then said, oh, no, I will have nothing more to say about that in the campaign. You see what I mean? I don't think we're looking at a master narrative here. I think we certainly are looking at a found strategy. Whether or not it works, I guess we'll find out. Pete wants to say I, I, I just want to say, I just think we've got to be careful of not always ascribing Morrison with this amazing power. It seems to be yeah. much more a stuff-up than a conspiracy. He's got front benches now trying to blame the New South Wales office, which Morrison has overtaken for a candidate they don't want to be seen with. This would be the and ultimate. Wales in, treasurer. Has yeah, come this, out this would be the ultimate in scorched earth policy. I just think they scrambled for candidates. He doesn't want to now be backing down because there is the war within the war, which is the war in the New South Wales Liberal Party, which he is actually only like he's losing. There is another story that all this focus on Labor being in disarray, this is a government in absolute freefall and disarray. And we will only know which one of those narratives is right when we wake up the day after election. And again, just to re emphasize, uh, women's sport probably not at greatest risk from <laughs> trans women. And, of course, we've seen the trans community more or less thrown under the bus for two separate policy wars now around women's sport uh, at the moment and previously in the religious discrimination bill. So sending all my love out to the trans community, trans rights are human rights and uh, hang in there, everyone. Hopefully it doesn't get uglier um, than it already has. Well, that was our webinar show, Pole Position, that's put together for us by the Australia Institute. There's a video available of this conversation as well. So if you prefer to see the slides uh, as we go along, we'll give you a link to that on the podcast uh, webpage as well, just so you can go and have a look. We'll also put up a link so folks can register if you want to watch the webinar live next time we do it in a fortnight. Thank you, as always, to Miles Martignoni, who is the EP of this show, and thank you to Helen Smith, who edited for us today. And we'll be back, of course, in your feeds this Saturday with another of our Ask Us Anything episodes featuring my wonderful Canberra team. We'll see you then.
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. A third of students are less than happy about their university choice, new research by EY has revealed. The findings suggest that a digital rethink is essential to meet the expectations of students and staff. Universities can address this by putting the needs of the people they serve at the heart of their digital strategies. Learn more about the future of human-centered higher education at theguardian.com forward slash transforming higher education. This message was paid for by EY.